Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another fine episode of Maker That Money, live on the YouTube's 9 a.m. Pacific Fridays with my good friend, Mr. Andrew Mayhall of 3D Gloop. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing great. How are you? I was, I was, <laughs> I'm purposefully trying to just have a little calmer okay. time because instead of doing my, uh, you know, okay. Robin Williams' Good Morning Vietnam say, you, you, you piece. Seem, you seem very, like soothing and and smooth this is smooth <laughs> jazz coming at you uh yeah you know just mix it up a little bit i i am capable of you know the highs and the lows and stuff and, and we'll see i'll okay i'll start rattling things off at rapid fire in uh, in no time anyway but right. uh uh you know a little housekeeping for those of you new to the podcast welcome this is the podcast where we talk about turning your hobby into your jobby as we like to say so uh we are makers at heart kind of came uh from the 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 maker sphere and decided we wanted to make a run of uh, making a business a livelihood of it and so uh we're here and then we you know we started a podcast cuz we like talking about these things and we figured maybe other people would like to listen to it too. So here we are. Uh, you got our origin story. <laughs> I am Pooch of Repcord. I own a small uh, business. We make filament storage uh, enclosures and a couple of other things, sell accessories in support of the 3D printing industry. Uh, my good friend here, Andrew, tell us your, give us your elevator pitch on All what, right. what, what, is a <laughs> what is a gloop. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm over here, the empire of sticky, if you will. Mm. Uh, we make adhesives and coatings for additive manufacturing 3d printing yeah, so that's a good one you, get, yeah. you got that nailed man i was like okay i feel <laughs> it now it's funny because um one of the initiatives i'll share with you guys we're working on is um doing some more uh co collabs like physical collabs with our product yeah. and uh you had sent us earlier in the week uh, some really awesome little samples of glue mm -hmm. that we're going to put into our our kits that are going into our product and and we're trying to create some reciprocity so mm -hmm. that other uh, vendors out there, if they're interested, uh, can expose your product to other people that are in the 3D printing space. Um, mm -hmm. But we were looking through kind of your, your packaging and going like, hey, you know, it says gloop on it. But if, if somebody that's like opening up this box sees this, like has no idea what it is, like we need to say things like free sample yeah. for, you know, like just kind of give the elevator pitch on on the labeling. And that's. Yep. It's so funny how we miss a lot of those things. Uh, oh yes, because we're so in our own head of like, well, of course, I don't need to define what it is. Yeah, but yep. important, right? Because we can't <laughs> assume. Uh, and and every day you probably deal with people that are are just discovering you coming across your product, your brand, and you got to mm -hmm. keep telling the story, right? Yep. Yep. Important. Yeah. It's uh It's it's kind of crazy when you when you look at it, um, how simple it could be, but also how fundamental it is, uh, yeah. you know, like literally just saying we are ludicrously strong glue for 3D printing um, beforehand. We never had anything like that. It was just, you know, 3D gloop. And that was it. Right. And once we added that, it was like people like, oh, oh, OK, you know, I get it. And it's just like, really? <laughs> So there's so. there's part one of your homework, guys. If you're listening here, like, and you don't have your elevator pitch refined, like, what is the one sentence, right? The thing that you can fit mm -hmm. on your product label that says, "Who are you? What do you do? Who is your daddy? And what does he do?" Right? Like, it's gotta mm -hmm. be 
there and you have to make sure you keep telling it because it's so easy to forget that not everybody is in your head and knows what who you are and what you are important mm-hmm. um on the pod today that's not that's not our topic for today though our topic for today is a very i think a very near and dear one and and tell us if you're with us in the chat today by the way shout out to Q, cutie patootie and pez liz and Mihao and alex and our, our regulars that are joining us uh, on on YouTube's like we said every every Friday and if uh, you you like to listen to your podcast which most people do you can listen back on any major uh, mm-hmm. stream but if you want to join us live and engage with us uh, we have a chat running right now uh, you can also call in on the Maker That Many hotline if you want to in person use your voice powers to talk to us as well so you can do that um, tell us tell us in the chat first of all tell us what your elevator pitch is. And tell us how you feel about this topic today. Two, two, two subjects. Uh, pricing. Okay. I feel mm-hmm. like we squeeze scratch this surface. We may have like kind of gone into it a little bit in the past, but but establishing prices for our products and our service. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Andrew, but like it's given me anxiety in the past, right? It like, gives me anxiety oh, all the time. Am I pricing it too high? <laughs> Am I pricing it too low? And you know the the mm-hmm. the challenges that come along with that. I think it's it's a tough one, right? Especially when you're getting started, right? Because there's there's some metrics. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you know what you try to go by. Like, okay, well, what is it costing me to make? And then I know I need to keep you know profit margin percentage for the yep. house to cover our operating expenses, overhead, all that stuff, and mm-hmm. pay for more materials to do it over again, and you know, and all that stuff. But yep. That's not an easy formula, you know, to come up with. And it's there's some variability in there. There's like wiggle room sometimes. And uh, a lot of it is kind of some feels, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. Oh, yes. There's no there's no one set formula that you can use just to say, here's what I have to sell my my product for. or Here's what I have to charge my, you know, bill for my services or hourly rates. Uh, There there are going to be some guesses, uh, especially when you're new to all of this, you know, and, and and taking that leap from being just a maker and going into being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And. I think part of the reason pricing feels challenging, especially as a maker, you know, that, that mm-hmm. might have come from the hobby space is like, it creates like this, this, um, metric, this personal metric by which mm-hmm. we feel people are judging us. And by that, I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I, if I have a product that I put out there for sale at a certain price point, there is value associated with that right and if people are not buying it you you tend to go like oh they don't value my product and because your product when you get started is is so involved in who you are it's easy mm-hmm. to take that personally people don't like my design they don't like my product they don't like my service and therefore they are not buying mm-hmm. and then you you know can la- allow that yep. to weigh on you too much i don't know is that fair do you feel like that that's something that has affected you ever? I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I do, I do think that that is a big psychological component, um, you know, as, uh, as essentially you're taking this idea that you have and you're now trying to assign a value to it. And, you, you know, the, the weird, uh, you know, aspect of 
you know, being in business to make money means that you have to charge more than, you know, than it actually costs you to make that. And so now you're like, what am I worth? And, you know, this is especially so with like, you know, artists and creatives uh, where, you know, their, their values are in maybe the 3d models that they're making or uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the services that they offer. It's like, how do you place a value on your skill and your know-how? It's um, uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> so we're gonna get into that. So we, you know, that's a that's a teaser because I want to pause for a second. I want to do our normal thing where I think we missed this last week, but we gotta we like to focus on the positives. We want to talk about some yes. wins for the week first. Mm-hmm. So now's the time in the chat where you share your wins, guys. Tell us what is a good thing that happened to you. It can be a personal thing. It can be associated with your business, but. Let's let's harness that good energy right now. Andrew, kick us off with a good win for the week. What do you got? All right. Well, nothing on the on the on the business front, but on a personal front, um, you know, this past weekend I took a trip out with the wife to uh Orlando, Florida. Uh we went we went Ooh. and, you know, walked Shut basically up. 30 Sunny. miles over the course of 3 days, um, you know, across lots of different things. Uh you know, Universal Studios, SeaWorld, and then uh, my favorite of all of them was the Kennedy Space Center. So very cool. Uh, I've never actually been to Florida. Um, I've been okay. all up and down <laughs> most of the rest of the Eastern Seaboard. Um, I know it does have some great things to offer. I know it's also full of, uh, of Florida men doing crazy things, as well from what I read in the news. But. Um, <laughs> Just haven't had the 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 right opportunity. We we're close enough to like Disneyland over here that I don't think like Disney World's pull is quite. We're we're not huge Disney people either, uh, but I know that yeah. there's plenty of other. I would love to see the the Kennedy Space Center though. That sounds amazing. Yes. So it what, was very any, impressive. Any, any high <laughs> any highlights from that? Yeah, I think I think you know we many nerds right are always like fascinated by um you know space travel and rockets nerds i mean those are space. always like you yeah. know the, the, it's yeah. like it's like oh cool you know uh yeah. you know rockets and you know like knowing that we've been to the moon and you know knowing like oh yeah you know the amount of energy it takes to get a rocket off the ground and you know how big these things are you really don't know exactly how big these things are until you go up and see it in person Uh um the saturn five is just it is incredible the the feat of engineering behind that um you know like an engine that's capable of producing a mind-boggling 1.5 million pounds of thrust and there's five of them on you know on a on a big ass rocket it's incredible like yeah (laughs) i i mean it's funny because it's like i hear those numbers and and I've, i've heard the same thing i'm like you just have no scope even if you were to probably put the banana for scale next to the saturn 5 like you just still it's just a mind-boggling concept like the the scope and the size of this thing but then when i hear numbers like 1.5 million pounds of thrust like yeah that sounds like a lot of something but it's like i have no concept of like what is a pound of thrusts uh in terms of my personal daily you know uh yeah life right it's just a mind-bogglingly large number so it's ridiculous. That's cool. Well, anyway, it sounds like it was a cool trip and good for you. It was a last minute kind of impromptu thing, but a very important. Yep. 
yeah very last minute um you know it was i think we decided that we were going literally the day of and it's like oh well hey um you know let's go ahead and, and get a get a ticket and you know jump on a plane and go down there so wasn't there a, was there a falcon heavy launch down there this weekend too were there you was there? you didn't see unfortunately, that unfortunately unfortunately i think that launched on tuesday tuesday morning oh okay um, i wasn't over the and yeah, yeah, yeah. we were we let we had to leave on monday um you know, so I, I unfortunately wasn't able to like I learned about that. And I was like, oh, man, I would love to stay. But yeah. my wife had to get back to work and it just it wasn't it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So, well, you know, maybe yeah. next time. Very cool. Yeah, uh, I think honestly, man, I think that's an important win to share because uh, especially as business you know, people, we allow our lives to get out of balance. And so sometimes just like going and doing something, uh, you know, getting your head right, not necessarily on the business, focus on family, all that stuff. Very important mm -hmm. thing. Very important thing. Yep. Good for you for that. Uh, I want to share a couple wins from the chat. We got some good ones uh, here. Uh, Alex says, uh, Alex Gibson from the UK, cheers, mate, uh, says, when he cleared down his 3D print queue so he can see his wife in the evening, get eight hours of sleep, do some massively needed R&D and get rid of some technical debt. That's always a nice. good thing. That's always a good thing. Liz, Pez Liz in the chat says her win was she started working out again after a month, almost a month off, even in negative 11C, which is 12F. Thank you for that conversion, uh, Liz, for, for our <laughs> Fahrenheit-centric people. Congrats. Good for you. Stick with it. That's great. Uh, Mihao. Win started posting time lapses of some prints and learning how Premiere Pro works so he can start ramping up media in the near future. That's good. Uh, that's mm -hmm. great, Mihao. That's a good win. Um, video is very much the medium that we communicate and do marketing in this, this day and age. That is well worth your while, I think, to invest in learning how to do some editing and therefore getting some messaging out. So that's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. and Grant's throwing you some shade for not visiting him while he <laughs> was in Florida. Cause he's Florida is all just close by. Right. So if you're in, yeah, uh, I don't know. He, is he, is he outside of Orlando? Are you outside of Orlando Grant? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I, I should have, I should have reached out, but, uh, you know, given that it was so last minute planned, right. you know, we had no idea what we were doing one minute to the next. <laughs> sure. Sometimes being so. that footloose and fancy free is good. Um, uh, wins for me. I'm going to take a win in that we are starting to form what I'm going to call the gold standard for uh, product build guide documentation. Like we're getting better at, for one, it's it's always been something I really dislike doing. I, I don't like okay. the documentation, the build guide, it, mostly because it always takes a lot longer than I think it's going to. I'll do it, and then I'll have somebody complain that uh, it wasn't detailed enough. And then in the other corner, I have somebody tell me that it uh, is too long, and it feels like there's no winning, no pleasing people, and the people that want written instructions don't like videos. The people that like videos don't like written instructions. So mm -hmm. we've tried to create a little bit of something for everyone in a workflow that we can do uh, that, that, is, that is achievable. Um, and you know, there's still some perfection to the process that, that needs to happen, but, um, 
Uh, for those of you who uh, aren't aware, we launched a new product this week. We call it the TT. It's actually the second version of that. It's a turntable for large spool feeding to your uh, 3D printers as we're starting to see more and more uh, large format printers and stuff come online and realize like these things eat a lot of filament and we don't like changing filament. A lot of the times having options for these larger spools is great. So we, we came up with this design. It's also modular and it acts like a filing cabinet. So if you want to use smaller stuff, not really meant to be a plug, but just to give you guys some context of what it is. <laughs> so <clears throat> the process that we, we've started with is we, we, thankfully we have a good defined CAD process now. We'll des design anything. We use Fusion 360 in our, uh, in our shop and uh, we'll CAD it all up. And we use that to create the files that we need to actually cut and produce the whole thing. And then we'll take that CAD and we'll create an interactive diagram that we publicly post. Um, and that has done a lot in terms of giving people context, just being able to spin the model around, do an exploded diagram, see where things are. A lot of people are just happy with that, right? They're like, I can intuit nice. from this. Mm -hmm. And so just starting out, that was a win, but that's always a starting point. Then we'll do a build video that is like bare bones edited. Like it's just, it's almost like I just record, it's not a live stream, but I'm just like talking and building as we go. And it's long, yes, and I understand, but you have to understand the point of the first pass video that we always do is for me to hand off to my production team who then turn takes that as a, a like, okay, here is the, the defined steps that we're going with, mm -hmm. and then they'll pull stills or they'll pull CAD renderings and we'll put together, we use a tool called Dozuki uh, that's just an online build guide, step one, step two, step three, and some images. And that has the nice benefit of being a free open source tool and people can turn it into a PDF. And so now nice. you can start to see we're defining like things that hopefully check at least somebody's box, right? If you want to have a printed, like I hate printed stuff. I don't think we need more paper <laughs> in the world, but you can go to Dozuki. You can go uh, export as PDF and print it out. And it's like, you know, five or six pages. If you want to print it on your own printer, that's fine. Uh, we, we try to... We don't do a printed manual as much as I think a lot of people would like to. I think it's a little heavy handed for what we do. And I like to be able sure. to revise and I don't want to have to reprint manuals and worry about that stuff. So I try to encourage people to use the digital assets because we can keep it up to date better. We're not always the best with that, but <laughs> now we're covering that thing. So we're, we've got a little bit of audio video you know, uh, interactive, you know, all that stuff. Nice. I don't know. You guys tell me, I, I was, uh, saying earlier in the week on Twitter, doing build guides is such a frustrating process because <laughs> it always takes so long and there's never, you know, making everybody happy with it. But what is it that you like, uh, when you're getting a kit product? And, and I was even lamenting too, like, I don't know, maybe the cost, and we'll get into, costing and pricing in just a second. Oh, here. yes. But you start to realize when, when there's all these support systems that go into place mm -hmm. to support doing a kit that you do not have to do if you just sell your product fully assembled, ready to go, you're starting mm -hmm. to realize, like, what is the true cost of having a kit? And, and how do I compare that to, like, if I just have the – if I just do the labor of putting it together – and packing and shipping. And obviously there's just trade-offs with mm -hmm. that stuff. And that, that could be a conversation of it in and of itself, right? Doing kits yep. versus fully assembled. There's <laughs> legal issues. There's all sorts of, it was an interesting conversation. Um, but, uh, 
it, it's, uh, it, there's no clear path. We end up doing both, right? Because it's silly for us to not offer, but it depends. Mm-hmm. It depends what resources you have. If you have the labor resources to do it, that's great. Um, but we already have to make the parts to do the kits. And so it's kind of yep. low hanging fruit to sell fully assembled if people want to pay for that and they don't want to do it themselves. Sure. All right. That was a long <laughs> win. I guess. It was a good win though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So trying to define a gold standard, trying to like start to feel better about it. Like it, we, it's the second time we've used this process and it seems like we're coming up with a better workflow and we've got some ideas how to improve it even further. Right. So I think there's, great. there's steps where we can ag- actually maybe start to outsource some of this stuff so that we don't have to worry about spending as much time on the support materials as long mm-hmm. as we're defining the steps well. So if we hand it off to somebody that doesn't know what the product is, uh, you know, that's a, that's always a fun, fun challenge. <laughs> All right. Into the meat and potatoes for today. We're talking about pricing, oh guys. Pricing your products and services. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> to start, at the head of the show, we said, like, okay, well, we I think it causes some anxiety and all this stuff. But, mm-hmm. but we, we're not here to just talk about the problems. We want to pro- provide some solutions and stuff. But I think before we can get to the tips and tricks and stuff that have worked for us, and again, disclaimer, mm-hmm. We don't pretend yep. to have it all figured out. There may be techniques that you guys use that are totally different that work better for you and your product. That's fine. I'm just offering some insight from what we have seen from six years being in business and you four to five. About f- four to five, yep. yep. Um, and, and then you can tell us uh, we're full of it if you want. That's fine. Um, but let's, let's get into it. So defining the problem of pricing. Mm-hmm. The first step or the first pass that I think what we, uh, and again, as makers, we're not oftentimes business minded. And so there, there is a component mm-hmm. to begin with where it's like the part where we focus on making money almost feels like a drag to a lot of makers, right? Right, And mm-hmm. that, that's really what defines whether or not this is the line of work for you or not. Like if you're really yep. like, I don't care about making money or I just I like it's a drag having to come up with the pricing and figuring out the cost and stuff like that. Then I'll tell you what right now, this may not be for you because you have to make money. If you're paying yourself, if you're paying your people, you have to. Every business is in business to make money. (laughs) There's no shame in that. We, we, you know, (laughs) you may not value it. It may be something that eventually you want to hire people Mm -hmm. to focus on more and stuff like you may be willing to endure that. And that's fine. But this is Mm -hmm. important, guys. And the first problem that I see a lot of makers stumbling with is that they do not price things high enough. So they're not really understanding the true cost that goes Mm -hmm. in. We get in what I call and what what we fall into the trap of others talking as that of just pricing the time and like materials, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the looking at the bill of materials on what it is and somebody yep. goes, you're charging X for this. Like I can get these parts and all this stuff for like half or quarter of that or whatever, without any appreciation of the fact that, it's not just about the raw materials. It's not even close yep. to just about the raw materials a lot of the time. If we're talking about mm-hmm. a tangible product. Yep. So exactly. Start in on that piece for us, Andrew, because I think that is where 
where a lot of us meet the challenge and that's where a lot of us get the resistance from the public. Mm -hmm. Well, so as a, as a maker, right, we, we are always, you know, interested in the actual process of making, right? So it's that discovery, it's that learning phase, it's building the first one. And for us, you know, we, we kind of forego the true cost it takes us of actually doing all of this research or design or iteration to build the prototype because we are getting joy from actually doing this and you know it's a fun you know process as you know as it progresses and as we start getting the idea of well hey maybe i've created something here like that has some value that other makers are interested in um you know how do I capitalize on this? And so for, from there, it's like, okay, well, as makers, right, we might be familiar with the spreadsheets and, you know, like Excel or whatever. And we're just like, oh, well, here's all of the stuff that I spent to actually make this product a reality, um, this prototype. And we'll just go line by line and we'll figure out, oh, this is how much I spent on screws and this is how much plastic and you know, whatever it might be. And we kind of rabbit hole a little bit in in this space where we might figure out all of the ins and outs of the actual material costs. And then we're like, sweet, there we go. Now I just need to sell it for, you know, like $50 more, but, you know, or whatever it might be, some <laughs> random number. Yeah. And then, you know, like people are going to buy it and like, I'm just going to make tons of money. Yeah. And profit. We don't Step really put three. any more thought into it. Right. Um. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's because we're not thinking of it as a business because we are actually thinking of it as a project. And the project is what we actually Ooh, as makers that's get a, the joy out of. That's a great you know? way to put it. Like, stop thinking of it as a project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And start thinking yeah. of it as a product. That's a good little soundbite. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great tip. And and I, I'd say alongside with that, my question would, would be for you when is the right time to even start thinking about pricing? Because you talked about prototyping, mm-hmm. right? And yep. I would say when you're prototyping, that's way too early. Uh, I mean, yes. you're, you're going to have some, you're, you're going to have some sense uh, in mm-hmm. terms of like, okay, well, I know what my material costs and stuff are, but your, your actual like R and D you, you don't want to start pricing in like the amount of time that it's taking you to just build that first prototype, obviously, because, when you take it to process to actually mm-hmm. mass produce, ideally you're no or your first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For your first, if you actually are now in a business where you are running a production company yeah. and you have this product that you're producing and you're going to make a next revision or whatever else, that's where prototyping, you actually need to start figuring out how much you're spending in R and D dollars and how much you're spending at actually developing these new things, because that for one as a business, that's a huge tax incentive, but two, you need to know if you spent a hundred thousand dollars to develop this product that in the end will only ever generate $50,000 of revenue for you as a company. That's a non-starter, right? You basically spent more to produce something that's never going to even be able to pay back the cost of research and development. Okay. Okay. Now you just said something that's incredibly important and that I think that gets missed a lot of the time because mm-hmm. again, maker focuses, maker going to make, right? Mm-hmm. Maker's excited to, yep. to make mm-hmm. and, and yes. is not necessarily doing market research and even, mm-hmm. even stepping back to understand the viability, the competitive market space right? All mm-hmm. the things that go in, like you may be able to make the greatest whiz bang X, Y, Z widget 
that there is out there. But if there are 20 other widgets out there that are priced at, you know, this stuff and you're competing with that, you're you're yep. already unless you've just got some secret sauce that puts you in a class that just is a completely different thing, you already kind of know where your price target may have to be if you're doing proper competitive analysis. And mm -hmm. I don't know a lot of makers that sit back and do competitive analysis. They just get excited about not like, many. oh, I did it. right. So because we, so, we think of it as a project, not are, a product, not are, a business. Right. So are we getting <laughs> yeah. out over our skis? Like, is this the is this a, a failing? Like, do we need mm -hmm. to step back and analyze? Like, you know, it's it's the classic uh, 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 Jurassic Park syndrome where it's like you got so busy thinking about if you could, you never thought about if you should. Um, that's exactly it and yep. and you you're yeah i mean i mean that's it that's it yeah. right there that's it so I, this is a tough one because i find when i get too much in the competitive competitive analysis space and all that stuff that i talk myself out of good ideas sometimes too because sometimes sure. it's the it's the process of exploring and iterating and wanting to make your own and do it better and all that stuff that like actually gets you to a better place that gets you to a different product. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't I don't tend to like fo to focus on products that have a lot of competition already, right? I want to. Sure. I think there are plenty of ideas, plenty of communities, plenty of things out there where you can find a unique space and idea, and I think that you're going to serve yourself better. Again, this is just what's worked for us. Trying to carve out a niche, a unique niche for yourself, rather mm -hmm. than compete on price, because that's when you get into the race to the bottom stuff. And and frankly, if you if the if the market is already saturated, if you're just starting out, you're going to get murdered because there are mm -hmm. going to be so many systems and people and and industries out there that can produce it faster, cheaper, better. Yep. So yep. You know, step one has to be like point of distinction do you mm -hmm. have a product that is unique enough that allows you to up charge a premium mm -hmm. or or engage a community that wants to work with you as opposed to just going and buying like a commodity product somewhere um, sure you know that's that's the step back uh, that i think sure. that gets missed like it's a, that's a massive thing it might sound obvious to a lot of you guys but i, I really think like I said, people mm -hmm. are just diving in way too fast without understanding the landscape. Well, yeah. And, you know, as as like a, as a maker, I mean, you know, the 3D printing community, uh, you know, it's incredible for the amount of innovation that, you know, a single individual can actually, you know, come up with. Like, you know, when we go to these shows like Murph and Earths, uh, you know, you'll see people are building their own printers and they do some really smart things, oh, yeah. you know, about their, their printer, like, or, right. or whatever that maybe it's a mechanism. They come up with this really incredible, like, you know, thoroughly thought through device or, or component. And, you know, then they're like, yeah, you know, people might, you know, going to be interested in this, you know, and, and then they, they go and show it off and it's really cool, but it never actually takes off. And it's not because right. I think we, as a, as a community think the idea sucks or the, the product sucks or it has no potential, but as makers, we get into this, this concept of we're going to keep going down and building this thing better. And, and, you know, we get this creeping elegance, if you will, of right. making this, this perfect thing that then we then try and, you know, turn into a product, 
but we actually started completely backwards where we focused it on as a project and we didn't think through all of the all of the business aspects and we just kind of presented it out there as a completed thing which could turn into a product but it still is going to require a lot more work right um, you know because it, 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 the way i look at it as in order to figure out pricing, you also have to understand the research and development costs or your time to actually develop this thing. But you also have to understand that, you know, we're, we're going to talk about your OPEX and your CAPEX expenses as turning it into a business as, a, right. as being an entrepreneur, because it's not all just about cost of goods sold. Like everyone no, is, not. you know, very familiar with that, that, you know, term COGS, right? It's like, yeah. well, it cost me X number of dollars to get all of these components in. And then I can sell it as a kit for just a small amount more. But what we don't actually realize is, is that doesn't pay the bills. No. You know? And it and doesn't refund all of the effort that you put into actually making that unit. Right. And, and we're going to get into the nuts and bolts. So if you're not you're not familiar more of the business terms, so COGS is a very important thing to know. We'll do, I want to dive in on that in a second. But I want to step back and, and sure. focus on something that you talked about earlier, which is the the trade show syndrome or uh, the mm -hmm. uh, maybe more uh, appropriately known as like uh, potentially an echo chamber of sorts. So when you take an idea to something like a Murph, like we have, like that's the Midwest Rep Rap Festival or, or any mm -hmm. uh, trade show that's out there in the space that you might be in a craft fair, uh, whatever event, right? That is a great place to, uh, engage a community to see what other people are doing in a space and all that stuff. That's how both of us got our start with yep. our product lines and stuff like that. But there is a tendency to, um, I think, get drawn in in a way that is not indicative what the, of what the overall market might be. And by that, I mean... Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that get excited like, oh man, yeah, you came up with this cool new way to build an extruder for a 3D printer and I would totally buy that. And, you know, everybody is generally just really happy and go, go, go and all this stuff and without really analyzing, mm -hmm. well, would you shell out $500 for this or three, you know, like, you know, we yep. want to try to understand that. Um, and it's really easy to, I think, get wrapped up in like, Oh, I had so many people come to my booth and love this idea, and therefore it, this must be the best idea ever and the best product ever, right? And you can mm -hmm. even ask, like, what would you be willing to pay for it? Would you pay two hundred dollars for that? And like, but surveys, guys. Oh my god, this is no. like my surveys are. I don't want to say they're worthless, but they're worthless. <laughs> they're worthless. I'm not saying it was <laughs> the aliens, but it was the aliens. The surveys, to me, like, are just like very rough guidelines at best. And I think it depends on maybe exactly what we're talking about, but when it comes to pricing, especially, and you ask the question, like, would you be willing to pay this and stuff? Like the way people will answer a survey and the way people will actually pull out a credit card and commit are totally different things. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Like, I feel like I, yep. I fell into this trap early on where I was like, okay, this is great. Everybody said, yeah, I would totally pay that for this. And then it's like, great, it's available. Here it is for this price crickets um yep. and and there's a number of contributing factors that go into that you know beyond that but again people when they're answering surveys a lot of times like they want to be positive they think they'll they'll do fine but like there's just not the same psychological evaluation in their mind as when mm -hmm. they're actually shelling out hard-earned dollars for something right that yep. is the voting 
that you need to go by, like your sales mm-hmm. data. And that's why we've talked about this in the past. Like your sales yep. data and your existing customers are some of the best data that you actually have because that is like good, tangible results. These yep. people were willing to shell out their hard earned for this. But obviously yep. we're talking about before you can even get there, right? We're talking about setting a price so people are actually willing to do that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what is your feel on the whole like, echo chamber surveys you know all of that in terms of like are they misleading are they not good tools they absolutely are very misleading in many cases um you know they they could be good tools if you know how to properly use them but that takes actually understanding what questions to ask being very Mm -hmm. careful not to lead the witness um being very careful not to you know basically contaminate your your results that you're trying to get um you know and uh, you know someone uh you know here in the chat mike mentioned kickstarters and pre-orders have a lot more value in many cases because yes this is someone who's actually voting with their dollar here Mm. they're signing up or pledging instead of just saying oh yeah i would buy this if it was available um you know we actually launched our product as a kickstarter um granted we were a very small you know kickstarter where we were trying to raise five thousand dollars but this was something where we decided that it was best to test the market and see if people would even be interested in this sort of product so so i i love this i mean i'm not a big fan of kickstarter i know a lot of people are and Mm -hmm. and that's that's fine um but there is no denying that when you have the useful metric of people saying like, I'm willing to, inv- it's not an investment, but I'm willing to like yeah. put out some money and wait yep. in support mm-hmm. of this idea happening. I like, I like the idea of that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me, uh, we've talked about maybe book recommendations and I don't know, some people, you know, if you've read Tim Ferriss before the, the four, was it the four hour work week? Is that his, his I, most famous? Yeah, thing? I think so. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar, but he's really big on like testing the market as quickly yep. as possible, right? Mm-hmm. He he he's and and a lot of people think he's he's kind of a he's kind of a tool in a lot of ways. Like when you read about his approach, but yeah. Like he would mm-hmm. uh, he would go put a flyer up uh, just to to, yep. to test his idea. Like would people invest in this before he even had. Uh, he'd go, he'd go down to the student union, put a flyer up and saying like, I'm offering, I'm getting this totally wrong. This is not the details, but sure. I'm offering yoga lessons to whoever or whatever and see what kind of response he would get. Like put those feelers out there early and often mm-hmm. and yep. see what kind of response and then allow your audience to drive what you do. Not, mm-hmm. I have an idea first and then try to get an audience. Right. Yeah. And so there, there is merit to collecting as much tangible real world data, like who's actually calling and saying, yeah, I want to do this. Like I got 20 mm-hmm. bucks for, you know, five weeks of yoga lessons or personal coaching or w- whatever it is. And, mm-hmm. and the notion of fail fast, you know, can yep. come in here. So it's like, it allows you to put these feelers out there and, and start to do that. That isn't a approach. That is not everyone's approach. But mm-hmm. I think the point is is similar in the sense that whether you're using a Kickstarter for that or whatever, trying to find ways to not invest a lot of time and money to mm-hmm. see if this is a valid idea before you even get to do I sure like, do I have a product before I even mm-hmm. worry about pricing the product? 
Yeah. Well, and so this is where I think this is a perfect segue into the actual discussion topic about pricing the product and why Kickstarters a lot of times fail because especially in like the 3d printing and maker group or crowds, right? This is usually a person who is really gung ho about building a product or whatever it might be. They they've developed this new printer and they're trying to launch it and they are so focused on, Oh, well I can get all of the materials. The bill of materials will cost me X dollars. And again, if I can, you know, if I can get people that show interest, right, maybe I just need to, you know, sell them for $50 a piece over my material costs, right? And they'll throw a number out there. Or a lot of times what you'll see in Kickstarters is they'll throw a wild ass guess as to how much money they need to raise in order to actually, you know, build the thing. And what happens is, is that, you know, you don't actually plan for the, the overhead, the operating, what Kickstarter takes, the credit card processing fees, all, all of the stuff that actually goes into making a business a business, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. your, your payments to yourself, um, you know, all of this stuff. And right. this all affects pricing. And you have to, as an entrepreneur, think through all of these individual silos, all of these individual elements that you know funnel into these silos and right. how much they stack up in order to get to a an acceptable price as right. a maker you know we're constantly like you know we we ourselves you know think of these things as projects and we might set a budget like oh we've got $500 to experiment over the next you know 3 months or so on our own yeah. little personal projects right. and so we're we're cost sensitive and so therefore it's like, oh, well, we need to make this as cheap as we possibly can. And, you know, from, from there, it's like, well, I, I need to make for sure that I make the price attractive enough for someone else to buy in. And mm -hmm. you're not even valuing your own time. You're not evaluating your own efforts going into this. And you're just, you're improperly pricing things. I think as simple as it is. I, I, you're totally right. I think that a lot of times, like, we almost talk ourselves out of like the proper price because we're discounting mm -hmm. from the jump. Right. Yep. We're just like, well, you know, but I really, and, and, and you, you, again, you want that validation of people buying. And so mm -hmm. there's a tendency to want to price it low to capture as many potential buyers as you can. Yep. The problem is, is there's a, I don't know if it's a fallacy, but it's like the, the, the whole notion that you, um, I have I've just, I feel like I get emotional when I, <laughs> when, I when I talk about this because it feels so so personal. Like I said, the, the, that again, we're trying to capture as many people as we want. We want people to feel like they value this, but but from the jump, um, mm -hmm. we're we're looking at it solely as this value proposition and not taking all of these factors into account. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to necessarily go through the spreadsheet and do all of the things that like to get the data that we actually need to understand. But mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about like, maybe let's focus on like a, a real world, f like application. Like, sure. Like, if you're, ha if you're happy sharing some of your pricing uh, strategy, yeah. um, we let's, let's get into the nuts and bolts a little bit more in terms of like, where's the starting point? Sure. And then what are the things that people are missing, like, or the harder things? Because clearly, the cost of goods sold is probably the easiest, lowest hanging fruit, right? I know what my mm -hmm. materials costs are. Let's yep. start. Let's start with that. So here's what I would suggest: throw out the cost of goods sold as the second piece. The first oh, piece okay. is 
we need to actually value the time that it takes to do the the actual development of the product the time you know all of the effort that you've spent in your total investment up to this point we need to look at that and then we also need to start looking at saying okay what is the total addressable market what is the you know serviceable market and what is the you know basically market that you can actually get um you know in terms of this product that you are trying to to attack the cost of goods sold will come here in a minute if we understand that we we have this idea and it's going to take us, you know, $10,000 to get to a functional prototype um, so that we we can actually build it, confirm that the idea works. So we now know that we've invested $10,000 into our startup or whatever it might be. We also know that, like, let's look at the total, you know, the total market. Like, is this is this a problem looking for a solution? Or is this a solution looking for a problem, right? So like, you know, there's there's two mm. different things here. You can build the biggest, baddest 3D printer that you want. And, you know, if no one actually needs it, you basically built a solution looking for a problem, right? And yeah. so it's just yeah. like this overpriced thing that exists. And so what, what I would say is just like, let's look at saying, okay, um, for example, let's look at Gloop right? There were plenty of other adhesives out there on the market. They're commodity adhesives. You can go to any store. You can pick up cyanoacrylate glue, super glues, polyurethanes, whatever you want, E6000s, and they're cheap and they're you know, ubiquitous and everyone knows them. But, you know, that's a huge market. And so what we did was, is, you know, I looked at saying, well, there are a lot of other, you know, different types of plastics out there. These adhesives don't really work super well. They work well enough. Maybe there is a niche here that we can focus in on and say, mm -hmm. could we come up with this solution? We happen to have a solution that we were working on internally for some other, you know, issues that we were solving. And that was that aha moment saying, well, wait, we have this thing. If we tweak it, if we engineer it a little bit more, we spend some time doing some development on it, we can actually turn this into a product. So what we did was we started looking at seeing how many 3D printers were out there, how much you know material people were using. We started looking at saying like different 3D models that were available online, what was hot, what was popular at the time, like what were people doing with these things. Mm -hmm. And we determined that there was indeed a value there. We didn't have exact numbers because some of the stuff is going to be really just based on you know feels. Uh, but we we determined that there was something there. We then knew that it was going to take around at this time $10,000 for us to actually get to a functional prototype that would, would really work that we could actually scale and produce this adhesive at. Um, it ended up being a, quite a bit more than that, but that's what we assumed at the start. Uh, so we started investing at first, it was $1,000, then it was another $1,000 and so on and so forth. But we keep track of all of that because mm -hmm. this was our investment to get to a product that we were actually going to be able to sell. Um, and then from there, throughout this throughout this process, we were keeping track of the ideal price that we wanted to target. So we looked at adhesives on the market, the rough cost per volume. Competitive analysis. And okay, yeah. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> so competitive analysis. And we started breaking that down. And then we came up with, okay, well, if we need to sell this, we need a hit. And I think our Kickstarter pricing was like $20 for our 120 milliliter bottle. That mm -hmm. was our goal. And it was like 12 or 15, I think it was like $12 for our 75 milliliter bottles. And so that was like, okay, well, hey, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to target. 
And so then from there, we started looking at what the cost of goods would be. And so we like, okay, this is the price for our bottles. This was the price for the caps and the seals and the labels and, yeah. you know, everything else. Okay. And we started breaking that down. And then what we needed to do was determine what our payback time for initial investment was. This is where everyone misses this step because they're like, oh, well, it's just an investment. But yeah. every business is in business to make money. Right. You need to make money in order to, you know, you need to have profit you need to in order to actually for that walk time away and energy from something. spent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so this is what we decided. We were like, well, we, we kind of chose, we want to get paid back our initial investment, hopefully in a year. Right. And so we then took that money and we divided it up over the number of bottles that we had to produce essentially in order to produce that number of, of profit. Mm. Now we also have to consider the cost of actually running the business. So the OPEX expenses, yep. Yep, so yep, yep, yep. the power, the rent, uh, you, you know, the purchasing, all of this other stuff that, you know, or, or like the yeah. services, like the website, all of this stuff is operating expenses that easily Marketing, gets missed advertising. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All kinds of plenty of extra costs and stuff. So and, when you're and so when you're starting <laughs> when you, well just when you're st when you're starting off though like a lot of times mm -hmm. you don't just have like good and 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 I think that's why a lot of people avoid it because it's like you just don't have good tangible data a lot of like a lot of that is where the feels come in but mm -hmm. a lot of that is where the majority of the expense can actually mm -hmm. be and where it gets even more wonky is as you grow that tends to get more expensive and yep. So you have to either roll. So hopefully as you get better, maybe the cost of manufacturing, maybe you're able to buy in bulk more. So, you, you know, your mm -hmm. cogs might go down, but like you have more overhead to cover. And so, you know, ideally you're not having to constantly change your pricing and stuff. Um, yep. I think your, your advice about thinking of a cog second is interesting because I, I, I'm not sure I would have gone there originally, but your, your point is well taken that, it, mm -hmm. it feels like low hanging fruit. And so that's the starting point that a lot of people have, whether you uh, do mm -hmm. that first or second, I don't know if that matters as long as you're taking cost of goods and operational expenses into account mm -hmm. as well. And for us, for me, I would say if you're just starting, like look at labor um, mm -hmm. because that, that is most generally going to be your most expensive cost. If you were just doing a, do a cycle time yep. analysis of like, all the things, all sure. the things that go into making that product. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, putting it on the machine, taking it. I'm, I'm talking about like, if you follow the, your production team or you yourself around and you say like, oh, mm -hmm. uh, don't forget, I had to go and print the label. And then I had to put the label on the thing. Like all that stuff adds up to be a mm -hmm. lot more than you think it is. A lot more. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, it, and, and I know labor is just one operating expense, but I'm like, I, mm -hmm. like, Let's do 80-20 rule. Like what are going to be – identify what your largest costs mm -hmm. are and focus on those numbers first. Yep. And and so, so you know, we've talked about this before, and I know we've had many conversations offline, um, you know, where I, I tell you, like, you as the entrepreneur, as the business owner, are the single most important asset to the entire operation of the business. You have to protect yourself. You have to pay yourself first. Everything else comes second. And I know it doesn't seem like that's the right way to do things. But if you take this approach, what you're able to do is structure things in such a way where you're focused on the operating expenses of the business. 
and the operating expense of the business being you as a probably as a single entrepreneur. If you have a partnership, okay, you need to figure out how much does the other partner need? Does the other partner work part time? Is it full time somewhere else? Whatever it might be. But the single most important aspect of the business is the entrepreneur himself or mm -hmm. herself. Mm -hmm. And taking care of that position first is, is essentially the whole reason why you're going into business in the first place. And it's one of those things that we as, as makers miss every single time because mm -hmm. we are mm -hmm. so focused on the project, mm -hmm. getting to be able to play. We discount our own value. We discount our own time. And we then, you know, struggle to make the ends work. And, you know, I know everyone's like, oh, well, but I can't pay myself first. I got to do this and this. Yep. I'm telling you, you have to make it so that you can pay yourself first. I, I, you know? Let's and let's. This is a <laughs> this is a bit of a digression. This could be its own topic as well. It could. Uh, and this is something that I've debated with you uh, endlessly. And Grant's saying the exact same thing in the chat. I, I feel you, bud, because mm -hmm. it's the same thing. At, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. we fall into the trap of I can afford to not pay myself because I can choose to not pay myself. I cannot choose to not pay. And it's, it's a totally different thing. If it's, if you're a solopreneur, mm -hmm. or if it's just you, obviously that's a different sure. thing than if you have employees, I value having the help to do the other things so that I can scale. And, and I don't know if it's a technical debt, but it's like, I look at it as I've invested in having people to help me do these things so I can focus on other things. And I have to, I always have to pay them. I always mm -hmm. have to pay them. If I don't pay them, they won't work. They, they, they're they not going to sure. continue to work for yeah. me. Absolutely. But, but to your point, you cannot fall into that trap for too long. That might be okay mm -hmm. when things are a little bit lean. You go, okay, you know what? I'm just going to not pay myself this month or pay myself less or whatever. Sure. But sure. If, you, if you run before you walk in that you hire a bunch of people before you're even mm -hmm. paying yourself, you're always going to be chasing after that, well, mm -hmm. do I hire the next person or do I finally pay myself properly? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And at some point your savings are going to run out. You're going to, or you're, you're going to, you know, and it's, it's not a, it's not a healthy be mm -hmm. place to be. I still struggle with this and I am six years in guys um, mm -hmm. because I'm borrowing against future potential thinking that if I have people helping me with these things so that I can continue to keep that flywheel turning, it's a dangerous game mm -hmm. to play though. It's a dangerous game to play. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a day. And you can, yeah. And you can, you know, we can, we can get into this much later in, a, in another episode, but you can absolutely leverage that to your advantage. Um, you know, but what, where I'm coming from in the aspect of figuring out pricing, if you come at it from the, from yourself first or your OPEX first, yeah. You can then start to establish saying, I need to bring in $2,000 a month minimum to pay for all of the things that go into actually making said product. Mm -hmm. So you have to hit that number. From there, then you need to calculate. This is why I said cost of goods come second. Figuring out what are the costs to actually make said product. Right. Now, this is not the OPEX. This is the actual physical cost, the material, you know, all of right. the things that go into the product. Right. And then you then figure out, okay, how many units are you average going to sell per month? Uh, you know, this might be a, a wild guess, but in hopefully you have at least a little bit of data where you can start figuring this out. And, you but know, the point, us, we but were... the point I think that's important here is at least make a guess, start mm -hmm. with exactly. something. You can be wrong. You can be totally wrong. Mm -hmm. 
but mm-hmm. but don't stall yourself out on the entire process because you're like I have no idea. Just like you know what, I'm gonna sell 100 units, just yep. so that you can get the data and then readjust next month. And so that was what we decided. We wanted to be able to say, okay, we need to sell at least one bottle of Gloop every single day, right? At least one. And from there, we're like, okay, we need to, you know, now this was a really basic math. And what we found was, is we needed to sell around three or four, Mm -hmm. but we started the numbers with one bottle, right? And we're like, okay, one bottle of Gloop, if we're going to sell it for $20, uh, you know, for 30 days, right? It's going to generate roughly what $600 of revenue. Well, that's mm-hmm. clearly not enough if if our operating expenses are $2000. Right. Right? So it's like, well, okay, from there, let's figure out then what is would be enough to actually get closer to that number. And so what we settled on was around 3 or 4 bottles a day to roughly generate that minimum operating expense. Well, then what we f- we found out was is like, well, the cost of our our, our glue bottle isn't free. So now we have to start figuring it out and adding on top of essentially this, um, you, you know, the cost of the actual product. So we targeted roughly around $3,000 a month of, of general revenue and which ended up, you know, uh, back in the day resulted in somewhere around three or $4 for cost of goods sold of the actual product itself that we would then sell for around $20. Okay. And this is where, you know, you can try and apply some very generic formulas. My suggestion with any product that you're trying to plan on eventually bringing on wholesalers or distributing partners or whatever is to aim for at minimum, no less than five times your cost of goods sold plus your overall operating expense bare minimum to produce said units. I could, I just that heard sounds... a bunch of people that were listening go, whoa, 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 Andrew, I can't charge five times my COGS. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever buy it. Um, mm-hmm. I know it sounds ludicrous, guys. And honestly, that number is going to vary, I would argue, wildly depending on what your product it is. is. You mm-hmm. have a much lower price thing. So obviously 5X on a bottle of Gloop is totally different than 5X on yes. the cost of a rep box that I make or whatever else anybody mm-hmm. else makes. Yeah. Very good points. I want to make sure we have time to touch on a couple of great things that are in the chat. And like, man, okay. this, this is just one of these things. I feel like I could go for <laughs> three, four, five hours on this particular sure. subject because there's just so much meat on this bone. But um, the, the Vast CNC had a great question that we actually talked about offline earlier this week. He asks, how do you quantify or track machine time and maintenance compared to human time in expensing? Printers and lasers, mm-hmm. they're kind of like employees. Now, before you answer mm-hmm. that, I want to disclaim, and I want to make sure we have a chance to focus as well. We are very product-centric business people, okay? Mm -hmm. But a lot of this magic does still apply to service-based things as well. And I'm hoping at the very end, maybe we can touch upon where the analogs lie. Sure. As a parenthetical. But let's talk about the Mm -hmm. vast CNC question here, because it's a really important one. Machine time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Depreciable assets and stuff like that. This is where we get into the wonky accounting stuff that a lot of makers just like, I don't care about this crap, but it's so important because it is so critically tied potentially. It's, yep. I don't think it's, yep. I don't think it's as high as your labor cost and some of the other stuff, but it is a cost a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Go, you yeah. tell, you answer. So, so, so yes, um, machines are assets of the company. They usually they're purchased upfront, large lump sums. What you as as you start getting into bigger and bigger assets, you start depreciating those assets over time for tax benefits. 
but also the, it's a whole concept of you need to be able to replace said machine over some period of time. Yep. It is not going to last forever. Sure, I've got a nope. 3D printer from 10 years ago that close. I could still print on. Yeah. But at the same time, it's nowhere near the quality of, you know, my Mark 3S pluses that That's I right. just got like a year ago or less. Right. And, you know, it, there's a usable lifespan to those machines. And so each machine is going to be different. You might be able to find some industry data, uh, but that's probably going to be for larger industrial machines. Uh, my general rule of thumb, uh, and it could change wildly from you know every aspect, you want to have that machine completely paid off within three to five years. And its usable service life is also three to five years. Now, to be fair, there are actual depreciation tables associated yes. with all kinds of different assets. So, it, mm -hmm. you know, what Andrew's referring to may be appropriate for maybe the types of machinery we're talking about. But when you yeah. start looking at depreciating, um, you, you know, sh uh, uh, storage sheds and shops, property, yeah. stuff like that, there's yeah. a ton of depreciable assets. There's different tables that the IRS mm -hmm. will even allow you to depreciate over, but they're Correct. good guidelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we, we just purchased a labeling machine uh, not too long ago. I think we're ha we've had it now. Uh, January 23rd was our, our first year. And with that, we had so the the uh, the IRS allowed us to depreciate that at a maximum rate over five years. Um, and that's for the state of Illinois. And so we, as a business, need to look at it as a, as an investment for that five years, but it will get depreciated. So every time we're running like on this, we have to account for the number of bottles that go into it and, and roughly how much it's depreciating per month over that five year. And then mm -hmm. basically count that as a, as a cost of our OPEX, mm -hmm. because we have to, we have to pay for that second device, that second labeling machine that will eventually replace this. Right. And you know, there are also maintenance pieces that go on to this. So what does your yearly maintenance look like? Like for a vehicle, you have oil changes, tire rotations, right. all of these things. Of and you have to break that up in, into a per month cost. Like if you have a service truck that's going to be driving 100 miles a day and you have tires that last 30,000 30, miles, well, okay, so take 30,000 miles divided by 100 miles a day. That's going to give the amount of cost per day that you're spending on tires. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now then you can add this up. You see, it's, it's simple stuff. Right. You can start adding this up and that is your OPEX. And this is why I said, start with OPEX first, not cost of goods sold first, because when you start with this, you know, Okay. I, I know, I know. So it's I'm going to push, I'm but... going to push back slightly because this goes back to what I was talking about with the four hour work week, uh, the Tim Ferriss book that, sure. that's super popular and stuff that, that like, it depends on what, it is like if you like you can spend so much time diving in on the OPEX and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, I would argue you want to get that thing out there and get sales data as quickly as possible. And yes. so minimum viable amount of work on diving deep on all this stuff before you even sure. know if you have a sellable product. And so, I'm not trying to say that you need to figure out all of those things. I'm talking big buckets here, like big boulders, right? Like, big you boulders. know, rent and, and, you yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, power. I'm not saying you got to go down and cost optimize or, you know, figure out depreciating for the equipment that and you're going to be using. You do that on a later stage. That, but, that's what I was going to say. I think depreciation is you're starting to yes. get into the nitty gritty a little too no. much for, yeah. for, and here, here's mm -hmm. the thing that I think that is frustrating. Like these are all the things, the OPEX is all the stuff that the public 
the non-entrepreneurial, the consumer doesn't understand, doesn't care about, does not mm -hmm. assign value. Like this is stuff that you know has a cost, mm -hmm. but this stuff is not obvious uh, to the mm -hmm. average consumer and therefore they will dismiss that as part of the value. And then sure. we, uh, and, and in the, <laughs> I don't want to say it's toxic, but in the maker community, because we are makers and we are constantly thinking of like, well, I can just make my own. We are probably uh -huh. more subject than most to the audience out there that goes, mm -hmm. that balks at our pricing, right? Yeah. Because they go, but I can just go down to Home Depot and get this, that, and the other thing, and I'll and make, I'll it, make myself. it myself, mm -hmm. right? I had, I had, I get this all the time. And you guys need to, first of all, early and accept the fact that this is, will always be a thing. You will never be able to combat it. There are always going to be the the customers. They're not even. They're not your customers. That's the first problem. Mm -hmm. The yep. there is going to be the people on social media that are commenting or whatever that are going to tell you that your price is too high. This is stupid. It's a stupid product. Blah blah blah. Don't listen to them. Ignore them. They are not your customer. They are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Even yep. though they're saying the things that make you go. Oh, I'm, my, my thing is too expensive. Like you cannot let that creep in because where that road ends, if you, mm -hmm. if you become subject to the criticism of your pricing being too high is you will just, you won't be able to pay for these things. You're going to talk mm -hmm. yourself out of your value Yep, and you will die. <laughs> like your, yep. your company will die. Um, yep. you cannot listen to that stuff. Yeah. Well, and again, what you're saying here is, is, is if you don't have enough revenue or profit to pay for the operating expenses for said things, you will never be able to create that self-sustaining flywheel. Right. Right. And this is why I'm saying figuring out that OPEX cost is so critically important at the start. You don't have to dive down and figure out every little detail. But if you have a big brushstroke where you know that it's going to take you $2,000 a month, $3,000, $5,000, $10,000 a month to just keep the lights on and producing, from there, then you can start factoring in, okay, this is what it takes to make said product, or this is what it takes to offer said service. Right. And, you know, then, you know, start adjusting and calculating those hourly rates right. for services. It's quite a bit different, right? Um, you know, because there is no cost of goods. It's all OPEX, right? And, yes. and so, and this is, this is where it gets really interesting um, is, is because you have to be able to one, make enough money to pay for the day that you're doing the service, but you also have to make enough money to pay for the days that you aren't doing the service where you're actually going out and getting new services Amen. right, or soliciting new services. Yes. And, and this is where, this is where it becomes critically important to understand what is your runway off of that revenue that you're going to be charging. Yeah. Like, you, you know, and, and I, I said, like, we charge roughly 5x of our total cost of goods plus, you know, our operating expense overheads, you know, inside inside the products. As we start getting to more and more products, those operating expenses are kind of pulled out of that product. We were, you know, just doing one product at first, and now we're doing multiple, and eventually, event, you know, eventually those will be two separate silos. Mm -hmm. But for services, it's all one silo, right? It's all about how much, you know, runway can you get for the service that you offer? 
That's um, what, that's totally right. And listen, guys, I'll let you know right now. I've done both here. I've had I was a web developer for 15 years freelance, so I've had a service based company, mm-hmm. and now I have more of a product based company. And like he's saying, there there are there's challenges and there's benefits to both. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of similarities. And and one of the things I want to hone in on that we kind of, I don't want to say brushed over, but like, uh, you know, Grant in the chat saying, we as makers make poor customers. The notion of knowing who your customer actually is and don't confuse the the people that are like in your R&D space, I guess, as a mm-hmm. maker, as your actual customer. Um, sure. There, the, and this is where the trade show fallacy, I think, comes in. Is like a lot of the times the people that are walking the trade show uh, might be other, you know, makers or businesses or stuff, but they 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 are not actually a customer. You need to identify the fact that you are creating something for the people that don't want to make their own, right? Mm-hmm. That would rather pay, or or they they are capable of making their own, but they realize that actually it's going to take me a lot longer and to source all the products. And at the end of the day, I'd rather just pay you to do it, like. Yeah, those are your customers. So, I know we're going a little bit long, guys, but I, this is intentional because I I love I'm passionate about this. I hope <laughs> I, you're okay with timing here, Andrew, for a little bit. Like, I wanna yeah, go, I want to yeah. go a little bit longer because let's go. There's some tangible. Uh, there, there's some some things that I feel like I want to share that I've learned uh, that that touch on some of the stuff that the chat's been saying in terms of 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 pricing. Um, and the, the first first thing that I would say after six years in is seek a little bit more discomfort on the pricing than you are comfortable with. And by that, I mean, price your thing high. Mm -hmm. John Strand talks about this. You can always discount things later on. Okay. Yep. But force yourself to hold that high. And, and I would say you, after you go through the, all the calculation of coming up with that prices add a, an insane, what feels like an insane fudge factor in there. 30%, Mm -hmm. 50%. Like a lot of times I'll come up with a number and then I'll double it. And then, mm-hmm. and, and then it still isn't enough. Um, it, it, w- sometimes it depends on what it is. Uh, but again, like John is saying, and, and I, I've said this as well, y- you can mm-hmm. always bring that down. It is a lot harder to go up. Yep. Uh, now that, that yep. said, I have some tips and some things that we have done where we were able to go up the mm-hmm. rep box. When it originally came out, I was convinced nobody's going to pay more than a hundred dollars for this thing. I don't know if I've said mm-hmm. that before or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I came up with that number. I was like, I, I, I was, I was too That's in what maker. felt comfortable. I was, in, I, was in too, <laughs> I was too much in maker mind and stuff, but I very, very quickly discovered from that mistake. I, we could not make the thing for, for that, at least mm-hmm. certainly not at the point where we started, you know, off and, yeah. and, the, what the product is now versus what it was then is is a different thing and and so um but i made the mistake of pricing too low to begin with and then i was chasing like getting that increased to where it is and yes you can do things and you'll see this from companies like where you'll send out an e-blast on an annual basis like you know we 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 at repcord have you know priced our stuff uh you know uh, what we think is reasonable but you know, times are changing mm-hmm. and you've seen the emails, right guys? Like yep. we're letting you know that come January, we're going to have to do a 3%, 5%, 10% price increase. 
Mm-hmm. That is a strategy, and I think people can see that and understand that and realize it. I think Printed Solid did a really good one this year or last year or whatever. They're like, look, we've, we've held our prices at $19 a spool for too long, and we have to go to 22 And people are like, mm-hmm. dude, it's still awesome stuff, right? Like, yep. we get it. Absolutely. That's fine. There's other techniques that I think that you can implement. What we did with our stuff is we started creating accessory kits so we would Mm -hmm. we would keep the base product low but then try to uh do like kind of a chinese menu where it's like oh but you should get this that and the other thing and we added more margin in on some of those accessories hopefully to kind of make a difference and Mm -hmm. to upsell and stuff like that but we were still trying to like throw back like hey let people just get what they need right you just need the Mm -hmm. base box cool you're not worried about seal kits and all that stuff totally fine or if you want to you don't have the money right now for the whole shebang get it you can buy this part later and upgrade it. So there, there's yep. plenty of strategies that I think you guys can implement. And like you said, you, you, you may, you may decide like, you know what, we're going to release a pro version where it looks nothing like it or whatever. And then discount and close out and sell and all this stuff. There yep. are always strategies for discounting and going bigger. Do you have other strategies in terms of like, if you missed your price target originally, like how mm-hmm. do you, how do you recapture some of that other than just like doubling the price? Yeah. So, so for us, what we did was, uh, you know, we did a lot of AB testing um, and, hmm. it, you know, it would, allo- it Define would allow that for us people to that don't know out. what AB testing so, is. Yeah. So AB testing essentially is just, just this way of presenting two different groups of audiences, different sets of information. Um, and in many cases it could be random. Um, and it's a, it's a test where you have two people, they might visit your site and they are presented price a, and another person is presented price B and you do this enough over enough times, you'll start recognizing patterns between people, um, you know, making purchasing decisions. And so we did a lot of that. Um, and what we found was that we were able to slowly, um, over time inch up essentially our product prices, um, you know, over the course of several months, uh, it, it, you know, when we launched, we got it totally wrong. We thought that, oh, hey, we need to, you know, we need to be like at $20 per bottle and that, you know, that'll generate enough revenue to, to, to pay for everything. No, we were way wrong. And what we found was, is that uh, bootstrapping, it's, it presents these interesting problems because you have to pay for the bottle that you sell for us. And then you have to pay for the next bottle that you're going to use to replace that bottle and then from there you have to have enough money to continue to grow or you know um, basically continue that that whole chain reaction and so strategies we use was just over time generic small increases through a b testing Mm. we found kind of what the maximum price would be uh and this is good because now it allows us to actually regularly run discounts or have discount codes that we give out to you know influencers creators just people uh that are advocates for the product that you know bring that price down to a more reasonable sense where people are more act you know apt to to purchase um and so, you know, this was just a way of, of figuring out, okay, what's the maximum price that we could sell this stuff at that people were actually happy at buying it at? And then from there, we can start regular, more regularly offering discounts so that right. people would, you know, right. would, would feel, you know, value for what they're getting. It, you know, there are certainly many different ways to go about doing this. Um, the, you know, the, the I other... wish we... 
Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's a that's a great that's a great tip. I like I like the idea of A/B testing, and there's tools out there that allow you to do that kind of stuff. Um, one of the other things that I think we we fell into that a lot of makers when you're getting started, are, you're not pricing in what the ultimate sales structure might be for your product, and by that I mean. Mm-hmm we never planned to have resellers. And so mm-hmm. I didn't price in like a 30 to 40% margin that if we were going to go volume, you need f- to offer a reseller. And again, that percentage mm-hmm. varies depending on what your product is and all that stuff. But if you're not pricing in with the fact that you are you want to get to a volume production in mind, you're going to be in a bad spot where you can't get to volume production because you can't have more people. And, and reselling isn't for everybody. If you want to do direct to consumer, you can do that. But there mm-hmm. are a lot of challenges associated and, and, and greater costs oftentimes. You may find that a better mm-hmm. strategy for you is to be a wholesaler, not a retailer, right? Where you focus mm-hmm. on just making the widget as as quickly and efficiently uh, and, and inexpensively as possible and give up that 30% margin so you don't have to deal with the customer support calls, the yep. all the things associated with the, the marketing and advertising expense. And you can just streamline like printing money, as I like to say, right? Like just mm-hmm. create that and and repeat. Um, yep. And, and sometimes you live in both spaces. We do both. We do some direct to consumer. We do some wholesale as well. But we've had to eke our way up. And the way that we kind of did that, I like to use revision control as a place to create distinct price points because we're like, yeah, re- listen, Redbox 2.5 is nothing like what Redbox RC1 was. Like, like that mm-hmm. thing looked like, you know cobbled mm-hmm. together from almost embarrassing right and so it's it's very easy when you start to have different versions to to allow that pricing the other thing is nobody really has the context like most it, you have to look at who your customers are and stuff like how many are repeat customers versus new because new customers have no idea what the original price was a lot of the time yeah. Right. So get out of your own head and don't know that like, oh, I used to sell rep boxes for a hundred bucks. Now they're 200 bucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the customers that are buying now are probably newer customers that don't have a value yeah. analysis. Right. Like, and I was talking about this offline. Like, I think that we very easily fall into this thing where we understand that at every price break let's say like every fifty dollars or every hundred dollars or whatever like there is a group of viable mm-hmm. customers right and at some point you yep. price yourself out of like that largest thing sure. and so we have a tendency to want to get down here so we have as many customers as we want but you don't always want all of those mm-hmm. customers you have yep. to appreciate that just because somebody is going to pay you fifty dollars for something if you if it's cheap enough does not mean that they're going to be a good customer for mm-hmm. you. They're not going to be a re- they're yep. only buying because it's cheap, not because they value. And this is why the notion of people don't value free is a saying, right? Like Oh, sure. The lower the price gets, the less the value mm-hmm. of the product yep. is. Is that a is yeah. that a fair way to put it? Uh, I Oftentimes, mean, I, I think so. I or there there's so, a there's know. a sweet spot, right? Where the where mm-hmm. the perceived value is. It's probably a bell curve. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's where it is, is it's, it's really comes down to perceived value because there are so many different customers out there that all have, uh, they all have their own perceived value of their dollar and they all value their dollar slightly differently. And, you know, from there, it's like, how do you, you know, how do you find that sweet spot for us when we were doing AB testing, 
Uh, you know, we did surveys and A-B testing and everyone hands down like, I want free shipping. They didn't want to pay for shipping. And, you know, what we found was is that you could say that, but actually people buying our product, they were more apt to buy a product that was slightly lower priced, but had a modest shipping charge than the the <laughs> slightly increased price but yeah. had free shipping yeah. because of that that value of free. Right. Like, you know, like, oh, well, I want free shipping, but you don't actually value that sh- that free shipping piece because exactly. you, you see the value of that price, that product and you're like, well, it can't clearly be worth that. And it's like, well, you know, guys, there's no such thing as free lunch. If you, you know, get an item with free shipping, Nothing is free. you're paying for the shipping. Right. It's just, Is it it's rolled into baked the cost? into the cost of the product. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. and a- Amazon and a lot of things like have ruined the perce- the customer perception and the, in the, in the aggregate for like mm-hmm. a lot of people in yeah. terms of like, oh, I, I can get free shipping next day and da, 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 da. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's just because that's what they bec- become accustomed to, but mm-hmm. that's not necessarily viable like our new product is like 40 pounds Mm -hmm. and if i were to roll in the cost of that shipping into the thing i think i would price out a lot of customers and if you have a unique enough thing where there's not enough if there's not another option for people and they're going like well you know it's it, it is what it is i put the dimensions i put the weight on there i'm like hey man it is what it is we have to like our packaging mm-hmm. costs probably 20 bucks in and of itself just to protect the thing to ship it. So we already yep. have to roll that into the cost of it. If I'm including an average of 40 to $50 for domestic shipping, mm-hmm. you know, now, now all of a sudden, uh, you know, a $200 product becomes almost a $300 product, 270, 280. Um, and, and people aren't making that evaluation. They're not thinking about that shipping cost, whereas it's much more clearly broken out. Imagine for a moment, if, when somebody goes mm-hmm. to buy something, not only does it break out like, oh, here's the product price, and 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 we see this with tax uh-huh. and stuff too, right? And yep. If you're familiar with the tax and shipping, but if it was like uh, labor cost, overhead, like if all the little components yep. were actually like visible <laughs> to the end consumer, yeah, I wonder what that would actually do. Would people be like, huh, okay, yeah, that pricing seems more fair, right? Because now like the product price is more in line with my materials analysis thing yep. and not the thing but we don't itemize that way we're not accustomed as consumers to see that i don't know tell me sure. in the chat what you would think if there was a more granular pricing structure <laughs> on every product that you saw like what would that i mean would it would definitely be perception? interesting I, I you know i think i think in many cases it would be it would still get lost on the customer because they'd be like why is your overhead you know 50 percent of the product cost well you know? the, like the, the thing, like think of a pure transparency where it's like you literally yeah. had everything and then you have profit margin actually built in there right because we we conceal we conceal <laughs> the margin we the profit mm-hmm. in there and the assumption that we make as consumers a lot of the time is that oh that's all going to profits for you know the big wigs and, and yeah. don't get me wrong there's a lot of things out there where there's a ton of profit baked in and all that stuff mm-hmm. and we get all blown out of shape and stuff but there's a lot of for small business you know, we're, we're, we're happy if we yeah. can be in the 30 for 50% and we don't always yeah. get to stay there. Uh, yeah. And that's not yeah. as much as you think 50% profit margin on a mm-hmm. 
Do the do the margin calc for somebody on like a ten dollar item or a hundred dollar item or something like that. Well, like, yeah. So so you know if you have um like so let, let's 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 talk about it. Like uh, you have a ten dollar item, right? And y- you know you want a thirty percent margin on that item. Right. That means that item costs you seven dollars, right? Yep. And you were able to sell it for for ten dollars, and you have three dollars left over, right? You know, essentially. Um, but what you'll find is, is let's say for instance, for bootstrapping, if it costs you $7 to get that and you have a 30% margin, you have to sell two of those things for $10 in order to even get close enough to buy another one, yeah. which obviously that equation doesn't balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's so it. you have a volume be- product. You have to go volume in order for that to work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's, that's where, you know, like for, for us, you know, again, that 5X, that margin makes a lot of sense because we have to be able to pay for the bottle that we, we just sold, the bottle that, re- you know, so that bottle, you know, the, the cost to produce that bottle, the bottle to replace that bottle so we can sell another one, and then all of the overhead that goes on top of that. Um, well, not you, just you know, that. And- we don't even think about the. We're not even talking about the rainy day or the growth fund, mm-hmm. right? Like the next person exactly. I want to hire, or what happens when mm-hmm. sales dries up, like to weather the storm. There, where there are too many companies that are flying, like going way too close to the wire, right? Mm-hmm. We don't look at our business in the same way as our personal finances. Like I don't know when you what your parents instilled in you or what you when you grew up, but it was like ten percent of every paycheck into savings, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and yeah. in business, that's typically accounted for in the profit margin, right? Like that's not, mm-hmm. there's not a savings number. It's just, mm-hmm. we use that, you know, margin, hopefully to, to have some funny money to, it's not funny money though. It's like, it's what you yeah. need to keep, keep going. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, and so yeah, for, for Gloop, like we actually have numbers like for savings specifically. Um, like what we do is we'll break out in our cost, uh, uh, you know, in our cost model of our OPEX, we actually plan for our growth. We have, um, I, I'm wanting to say it's like a 12% margin, um, you know, roughly out of that, that goes into a growth fund. And so that allows us to buy equipment or upgrades or, you know, new reaction vessels or, uh, you know, buying in bulk. We also have a cost of good good sold account where this will pay for let's say our new injection molded caps that we order we have to order those in bulk and so we take out the price for that plus a uh inflation value amount that we kind of calculate um exactly so plus an inflation value amount plus uh, a little bit of like a, a a fudge number uh that that we kind of find with you know the the shipping and everything else when we're getting these you know like large orders in um and so we actually break that out and we have separate accounts so you know gloop we have i I think it's like six some six or seven accounts that are all split up that money is actually going to every single month um and that's did you you do that from the jump though because i would say like we did it from the the, jump okay Mm -hmm. so that's good because i think a lot Mm -hmm. of companies like i didn't uh like yeah there's so many things that we miss so we're talking about creating the price right but we're not thinking about what's the rainy day fund what's the growth fund what's the what's the breakage Mm -hmm. fund like we're waste waste is a huge one for us right where we just were not Mm -hmm. pricing in like you know what miscut there or the power went out middle middle of the print and we lost the print um yep. or just general like lethargy of employ like the efficacy yeah. of your employees as compared to what yep. you do right like sure 
is is oftentimes 60 70% at best. Mm-hmm. I mean over the course of, and I don't know. You can you know, argue with me like ideally you want to <laughs> find good employees but I'd say like on average people are probably happy to have people that are just you can't run people at 100% all the time. And sure. so you need to mm-hmm. account for that as like waste of labor mm-hmm. and and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so we did we did a lot of this stuff from the jump, and I will fully admit that we didn't utilize it the the, the way that we intended for you know at first. Like we have a tax account um, that we'll what we'll do is we'll take like our sales tax data that sort of stuff, and all of our that just gets funneled into that tax account where we don't touch it every quarter. Then we send out the taxes that we need. Um, like I mentioned, we had you know um, you know our cost of goods sold account. We'll have a you know a growth account where we're trying to save and put aside money. Um, yeah. You know, we have payroll accounts so that, you know, again, we take out the margin for our overhead, our OPEX expenses, um, you know, labor being the most expensive one, and it goes into the payroll account. And then from there, we run all of our payroll out of that account so that we have a clear understanding of where all of the money is going. Um you know, and as we continue to grow, I'm sure we'll add more and more accounts. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong in having one big master account and using QuickBooks or whatever to look at it. But I find that as a as a maker, it's easier if you have a quick glance and you can see physical separation of money instead of a software separation of money in QuickBooks. Like, mm. oh, this is going to this account or, or whatever. It, you know, this is just a, a big bucket approach. All right. Uh, I've got one last question for you, and we got to wrap up because we were going almost 90 okay. minutes here, and I know that <laughs> we, could, we could keep going forever. But um, what, in your mind, is like a reasonable amount of time to reevaluate your current pricing? I think we do it maybe on a six-month to annual basis uh, internally for mm-hmm. us, but uh, obviously costs tend mm-hmm. to they increase. If you're yep. lucky, you know, some costs might might go down over time and stuff, but like Obviously, you have this is a ongoing maintenance, a thing that you have to be looking at and reassessing regularly, and hopefully, something you get better at the more you do, right? Sure. Uh, you know, ideally, you'd be evaluating your price. I'd say quarterly. Um, you know, this way, you know, if you're if you're in a product business, um, you know, what we found with with COVID, it totally borked everything with supply chain and cost of items um you know we buy um you know reagents that are known as uh you know commodities these yep. commodities come from oil industry yep. well you know uh what we did find when the administration changed and you know covid happened some of these prices they went down but some of them went way up And we had to, you know, we had to adjust and we didn't actually adjust until way later. And when we realized like, hey, we are actually making, we're not making enough money to keep this wheel turning. Yeah, Uh, we have to, we had to refactor prices. Um, And so I would say ideally every, you know, every quarter you, you should really look at you know, what the cost of materials is, because what we saw over just the past year, we saw a hundred percent increase in our cost of materials to make our product across the board. Some were up to three or 400%. And that was just in the past year. Now, you know, again, some of it really changes on fluctuation from other markets. And, you know, there are so many different influences out there, but, you know, realistically speaking, if you, it comes down to understanding what your product is and yeah. how that, you know, is related. Well, and it's good reason to be the closer you're tied to your purchasing product uh, process, the mm-hmm. the more aware you'll be. But it, it's like you said, like it's wild in the, you know, two and a half years we've been 
doing stuff, I've seen the prices quadruple mm-hmm. on some stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and it's, uh, and you just have to be like, well, you know, yep. the, that's what the price is. So here's a random example really quick. The, the rep winder product I have that like rewinds the filament mm-hmm. when, when it retracts from your printer, um, uses a tape measure spring. And we were just sourcing the, the Ikea tape measures, these tiny little 10 meter long okay. uh, tape measures. And when we first started this product, those, those things cost a buck a piece. They are like four fifty uh-huh. now, and again, it's a oh, small wow. product or whatever. But it's like, okay, uh, the literally like half of the cost is now tied up in these, you know, tape mm-hmm. measures, and I don't, you know, it's like I've increased the price like a little bit, but at some point, like the materials feel like it prices the entire product out, and how much of that is me psychologically being like, look, the price is the price. If like this is what I, yeah. if they can't source it any cheaper than I can. Yeah. But but it 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 brings the overall cost above a thing where our perception of the value of this product, in my mind, is still based on you know uh, twenty nineteen numbers, uh, which sure. is which is weird. I think we have a tendency to like live with financial values of like our mm-hmm. our formative years uh, more mm-hmm. than you know people like what you know. I, I still think yeah. like oh six figure six figure salary is a great place to be and it's like it's poverty line in some places now right like where it's yeah. like you're not earning two hundred three hundred k to be solid middle class and you're like Jesus that's just insane um so not mm-hmm. falling into the comfort like trying to be tuned into what current costs of our because inflation just kind of we we hear it talked mm-hmm. about but it like creeps up on us and when we get into these high inflation times. It yep. becomes really easy to potentially fall into this trap of being totally underpriced, undervalued. Um, sure. So. Yeah. Man, we covered a lot of ground today, Mr. Andrew. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I want to thank, thank all you, of you guys everyone for, for sticking around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Vastiency wants to go deeper into OPEX next time. Uh, and maybe we can, man. We, this yeah. is the really sexy, sexy things that we like to talk about. Operational expenses and stuff like that. Um. Uh, yes, Grant. I will. I will reach out. Yeah, they're constant force springs, and there's some nuance to the whole thing. But uh, it's interesting stuff. If you have stuck with us this long, you're awesome. Uh, high five. Now I'm like ripping off Joel's closure right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, hug each other more. All that stuff. Thank you for joining us for another great episode of podcast. Uh, podcast, comma, maker that money. I don't know why I let it that way. The maker that money podcast. Uh, we love you guys and hope to catch you next Friday for another good one and uh, hopefully have another great topic of conversation to cover. But until then, be well, everybody. Happy weekend. Happy Friday. See ya. Bye-bye.